Hello, everyone. I'm Priest Willis, and this is Missions in Marketplace podcast, episode number 66. Today, I'm joined with Cheryl Miller Hauser, who is the founder and CEO of Creative Breed. Through the years, Cheryl has produced ventures from TV shows like Dr. G Medical Examiner to web series and other socially conscious documentaries like Children of Darkness and Trust Me. Launching off with her own agency, Creative Breed, has given Cheryl even more freedom to create emotionally engaging content that inspires people to think, feel, and take action. In her recent documentary, Generation Startup, now on Netflix, takes us to the front lines of entrepreneurship in America, capturing the in the trench struggles and triumphs of six recent college graduates who put everything on the line to launch startups in Detroit. Along with co-director Cynthia Wade, Cheryl's film celebrates risk-taking, urban revitalization, and diversity while delivering a vital call to action. I took time out to watch this documentary. It is probably one of the best documentaries that I've seen as it deals with entrepreneurship and the struggles and the layers of people. Sometimes we look at entrepreneurship in such a glamorous way that we forget these are still people. They have challenges and they have layers to them like an onion and we have to peel it back. So without further ado, here is an awesome, awesome storyteller, Cheryl Miller-Hauser. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a filmmaker. I started out making documentaries. I was one of the producers on a film called Children of Darkness a long time ago that was nominated for an Academy Award about children with mental illness. Then I moved into feature films and was one of the producers on David O. Russell's first film, Spanking the Monkey. And then I started having children and didn't want to be in L.A. all the time. I, I live in New York. So I moved into nonfiction television at a time when nonfiction TV was infotainment and was head of production for a number of big independent companies overseeing hundreds of hours of TV for Discovery Channel, History Channel, Nat Geo, Food Network, all of the cable companies. And then a few years ago, really wanted to be master of my destiny in terms of the stories that I was telling and the people I was working with and and only wanted to tell stories of uplift. And I took the very, very scary move of leaving a very secure job, jumped off a cliff, as I call it, and launched my own company. I'm producer and co-director of Generation Startup, which we'll be talking about. The first project that we did at Creative Breed, my new company, was a series of food and wine magazine called Mad Genius Tips, which has been super successful for food and wine magazine and, and was nominated for a James Beard Award last year, which is a big honor in the food world. So anyway, that's my background in a nutshell. Yeah, that's really cool. So congratulations, first of all, on your jump to Creative Breed. So it's a creative agency. So you're not dealing with just films within this agency. You guys are doing kind of a broad approach to creativity across all platforms, right? I've told stories of every format and length and distribution outlet. And I believe so strongly that Great storytelling is great storytelling, and that can be in a podcast. It can be in a written page. It can be a 93-minute film like Generation Startup is. It can be in a two-minute 
web video like Mad Genius Tips is. And our goal at Creative Breed is to tell great stories. How we approach it is often we have a kind of two-pronged approach to creating content. And one is we find stories that we find super uplifting, like in the case of Generation Startup, and then go out and find the funding and figure out the distribution. And the other thing we do is we do client work. So I just directed and we produced the fall campaign for the Chico's clothing brand, which Mm. we shot with real women in their 40s and 50s celebrating being comfortable in their skin. So they wanted a, a documentary filmmaker to capture kind of these authentic moments with women. So role models, not real models. So it's a it's a combination of client work, work for hire, and in whether like the web series, like Magic News Tips or branded content, and then also uh, projects that we develop and find funding for. Yeah, that's really cool. Really cool stuff. So one of the reasons why you and I connected was because of one of your projects, which is Generation Startup. You know, I kind of wanted to talk about, first of all, the nuts and bolts behind it. But how did you guys get into a partnership with Netflix or did you? Was this exclusive, the rollout to Netflix or did you kind of do it through other avenues first and then it went to Netflix? How did that come about? So um, Generation Startup, you know, we follow six recent college graduates launching startups in Detroit. We filmed with them for a year and a half. We ended up with 220 hours of footage that we cut down to a 93-minute film. And I wanted to be as entrepreneurial in in distribution of the film as we were in making it and as the characters we follow are in the film. And documentary distribution is broken. People do not go to the movie theaters Mm -hmm. to see documentary films. In rare instances, when you have a tremendous amount of buzz around a film, But also distribution in the conventional way is super expensive. The huge ad buys and you have minimums you have to pay to guarantee to theaters or minimum buys in terms of publicity that you have to guarantee to the theaters. We did not want this movie playing in movie theaters across the country to empty movie theaters. I mean, I go to see documentary films in the movie theater still because I love that experience of being in the movie theater and, you know, the surround sound and all that. And most of the time, the theaters are empty. And I find that really sad. And we knew a film like this also had a real niche market Mm -hmm. that we wanted to reach. So I was very fortunate in getting funding from a foundation in Detroit, the William Davidson Foundation, who funded our release. So we were able to control our distribution. We also controlled all of the marketing and branding around the film. So we created the trailer with the editor who cut the movie. At Creative Breed, we did all of the social media around it. We have about 24,000 followers on Instagram and over 30,000 on Facebook, which is actually huge for an indie film. I mean, most indie films end up with two or 3,000 on Instagram. Agreed. So And then we also controlled the distribution. And one of my executive producers is Susan Margolin, who's a leader in documentary distribution and helped put together like the A-team. So we had uh, Longshot Factory, which is a company that does documentary distribution to theaters. We hired them. We hired PMK, which is a leading film PR agency. And we released the film in New York, L.A., and Detroit, theatrical release. We were lucky enough to get booked at the IFC Center, a leading indie film exhibitor in New York and and at the Monica Lemley in L.A., and then the Detroit Institute of Arts in Detroit. The idea was to go out in these three key markets and get national press. 
And that was really the foundation for our event distribution. So after that, after we had national press and a lot of buzz on social media, we were the top ranking film on iTunes for a few hours the day that the trailer came out on iTunes. We then had a team of six people who were handling event distribution. So the film's been screened at over 200 places around the U.S. We were booked by major companies, by foundations, by nonprofits, by universities, venture funds, where they did event screenings, public screenings, were bringing together people in the startup community around the country. First Round Capital did a screening of 250 people in the startup community in Philadelphia. Kiva, the micro-lending nonprofit, did a screening out in the Google offices in San Francisco to drive a conversation around income disparity. So each group used the film to drive discussion around different issues in the film. And we also did a lot of private screenings as well. American Express, for instance, their innovation group screened in New York, India, and London, and then did a Q&A with us afterwards. LinkedIn flew us out to their offices in Silicon Valley and streamed the film to all of their offices around the world. For They have an, uh, an in-day once a month. So we were part of their in-day around the theme of learning last, I think, October. You know, it, we did these event screenings around the country, both internal private screenings at companies for team building and also these external public screenings. And also the film is part of a program with the State Department, a cultural diplomacy program called American Film Showcase, which is a partnership between the State Department and USC Film School, where they pick about 20, 30 films a year and they send them around the world through embassies. And um, we were part of that program last year and they invited the film to stay on for a second year, which they don't usually do. But they said there's such a demand from embassies for films around or about entrepreneurship. So I went to Tunisia in January with the movie for a week and did screenings every day with startup communities and business schools there. I was in Chile as part of a film festival and did a workshop for three days with Chilean filmmakers and also screened with entrepreneur groups in Chile. And Cynthia Wade, my co-director, went to Mozambique and Dextina, who's one of the characters in the movie, went to the Caribbean for a week. She's black. She grew up in poverty in Bed-Stuy in New York and ended up going to MIT and graduating with a degree in mechanical engineering. I mean, mm-hmm. she's just amazing. So she spent a week in, in the Caribbean with the State Department talking to students there about, you know, telling them her story, sharing her story and saying, I did it. You can do it too. The film now is also being distributed through an educational distributor, TUG. So it's being sold um, or licensed to middle schools, high schools, universities and libraries, along with curriculum we created. So for the educational marketplace. um, So part of our whole distribution plan was the for six months, we did these event screenings, robust event screenings. And then six months after the theatrical release, it became available on Netflix. You know, Netflix has their Netflix originals. This was an acquisition from Netflix. And the film will be coming out on on iTunes and Amazon and Google Play in the fall. But definitely we're thrilled to have it on Netflix because it means that it has, you know, really wide distribution there in you know, hundreds of millions of homes. If you're not going to be in the movies, Netflix strategically, of course, which I think was very smart. I can't even think of the last documentary, me or anyone else that I know of that went to the movie theater to purposely watch it there. So I think people just like yourself are strategically not putting them there. But if you're not going to be at the theater, Netflix is the next 
biggest distribution place that I think you can set it up. So it, that sounds like it worked out well for you. Yeah, definitely. But I will say that these event screenings were super powerful. We screened on Capitol Hill. We screened, I mean, we were invited by the White House to the Global Entrepreneurship Summit last year. That's where we had our first public screening. Bloomberg had a public screening here in New York. I mean, the film, it's wonderful to watch it on your computer in your bedroom. But at these event screenings, we're bringing together hundreds of people in, in the startup community or, you know, various communities. There is still something really special about seeing a movie with a group of people mm-hmm. and then afterwards the discussion the the film viewers find it to be incredibly emotional and powerful and they really enjoy engaging afterwards i mean we did event screenings at co-working spaces which turned into kind of group group you know support groups you know where entrepreneurs would say things like Oh my god, you know, this film has given me renewed inspiration. I feel so alone. It's so hard. It's like so helpful to see that other people go through exactly what I'm going through and everyone was so relatable. So again, we're thrilled to be on Netflix and hopefully reaching many multiples of people whom we reached through the event screenings. But again, there is something really great about people coming together and sharing that experience around a film that is very emotional. I agree. You know, and that wasn't to take away from that because I can Yeah, no, no, no. I yeah, no, I didn't feel no. you were taking away <laughs> no. from it. I can only imagine that of course I found it out through Netflix, but finding that film on many different levels, and I talked to you about this before our discussion here was that the fact that you were in Detroit you looked at six individuals that were from many different backgrounds, you know, and we'll kind of tap into that a little bit. But also the real time feedback that I can imagine you as someone who was invested in creating the film, seeing others, how they interact with one another and getting that real time feedback had to be exciting for you. So you can feel the pulse of those people that are also in those positions, creating businesses, because the first thing I thought of after watching the film, one of the biggest co-working places that we have here in North Carolina is American Underground in downtown Durham. So Steve Case and a lot of people come through and they focus on, they call it Silicon Valley South here in North Carolina, specifically in Durham because of this co-meeting space. And that's where our business was birthed out of, you know, when I moved to North Carolina here. So one of the first places I thought about taking it was to North Carolina to show kind of go through their chief strategist, Adam Klein, to show him the film so he could show it to those other businesses there. So this is great. I, I you know, I kind of want to talk about get into why I thought this film for me had a lot more layers to it than other startup type films or documentaries that I've watched. And I mentioned some of it earlier, you know, the fact that you're going to Detroit. Well, Not many people have to know Detroit has been somewhat the joke of the country in some respect. I mean that respectfully in the sense that I believe they filed for bankruptcy and they've had their set of issues just through and through. And we also hear about this resurgence with people coming in and building businesses. But beyond that, what you're showing with these six individuals is they're not just building a business or trying to come in and create something because the opportunity is there, they really want to be a part of the fabric of that community. So I love this film on that level. But more importantly, these are young people. Dextina, who you brought up a little bit earlier, I believe she was 23 or somewhere along those lines. So she graduates from MIT, takes on these covert operations. I joked about it with you earlier. 
I think it was really cool how you captured a lot of that in these different individuals. One thing that stood out to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Labib is talking to his dad. Am I saying his name right, Labib? Uh, yes. He's talking to his father, and I believe his dad is asking him, do you think you should be happy with where you work? And Labib is like, yeah, I think you should be. And Labib asked the question back to him, do you think you should be happy? And the dad says, no. And it shows the name of the film is Generation Startup. It shows the difference in the generation where Labib's dad almost is just like, hey, I just go to work to do what I have to do. Where Labib is kind of looking for happiness and satisfaction in what he does. And you kind of see that as he rolls out on his role in being a production manager and all that. But how do you reconcile with that as the director and someone who's filming this on seeing this difference of of understanding how the business world works? Right. Well, Labib's story is so complex because um, not only is it generational, his parents are immigrants from Bangladesh who have sacrificed everything to send him to a good university. And he also graduated with an engineering degree. And I mean, they were in uh, debt. I mean, they went heavily into debt to pay for his education with the full expectation that Labib would come out of school and take a high-paying and high-paying mm-hmm. engineering job. And help and the family. Be, and be able to not only repay their debt, but support them. Mm-hmm. So you have the conflict also of the parents who are counting on Labib and also have a very conventional view of the world and of work. And the dad was, you know, a taxi driver who then became an Uber driver, but was having a really hard time, you know, mm-hmm. earning any money. They've come around now, but the expectation was even stronger there than under, I think, a lot of parents still today have this idea that you come out of school and you take a conventional job. I mean, that's really what the movie's about. The movie is about the pressure on kids to follow a safe, secure, conventional path, which is something that I think gets instilled in kids from a very early age because it's you have to do well and you have to get into a college and then you're like, and entrepreneurship, as we say in the movie, at a 26-year low, Mm -hmm. especially among 18 to 30-year-olds who are super risk-averse. People are shocked to hear that. But these uh, young people have social media accounts and blogs, but they're not starting companies by and large. And there are a lot of reasons why they're coming out of school with college debt, access to capital is hard, but also they're very risk-averse. So Labib, his view on life is, I want to do something that will, uh, yes, I want to make money, And when he started out, he actually was very driven by money. He's much less driven by money now, Um, although he is now supporting his parents. So he has to think about money because he has these very real uh, responsibilities. But he was thinking about what can I do that I will bring me fulfillment. And then as the movie goes on and he I mean, the the film is very much about all of these young people Mm -hmm coming to understand what's important to them and their values. And Labib 
comes to value also doing good. And by the end of the movie is thinking about what can I do that will be a startup that I'm committed to and passionate about, but that also will do good for the world. But anyway, in in their instance, that was definitely, you know, the film opens on that scene around the kitchen table with the parents where they're screaming at Labib and very disappointed that he's about to go to Detroit and work for a startup. And he asks, do you think people should be happy not even happy at work, but do you think people should be happy? And his father answers no, because in the father's mind, it's about just making ends meet. But the film is very, very much this emotional, personal journey for each one of them to come to understand what's important to them in life. And I mean, for me, the movie, most of all, is about moving outside our comfort zone, learning to overcome fears, to do things that are scary. And that's how we grow and evolve as people. That's how we figure out who we are and how we develop new skills, conquer new challenges. You're kind of an example of that. You know, before you started Creative Breed, you mentioned you had a pretty cushy job for the most part or something you could rely on at least and kind of moving over to Creative Breed it's sort of on you, essentially. Well, it is on you, not sort of. It is. It is. And I'm, you know, <laughs> definitely very, very well aware. I have two employees and, you know, full, I mean, full-time employees. We expand and contract and based on the project and, and take on more people as, as needed and, you know, rent and insurance and like all those things that no, you no pressure. run a company. No, pr- yeah, no pressure. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Yes. And, and I did. I was head of production for a large independent production company and earning very good money and very secure job. And it, I got to a point where I wasn't enjoying the content I was making. And I was in my late 40s. And I said, it's now or never. I have these skills. And I don't want to look back and say I squandered them mm. telling stories that I'm not proud of or, or proud of the product. But, uh, you know, it was more about, I really wanted to wake up every morning and be excited and inspired by the stories I was telling the people I was working with and wanted to use my skills to inspire other people. And sometimes social good. I mean, the mad genius tips are not social good, but they're fun and they bring joy to people's life and they help them like in the kitchen. So, you know, so when I say inspire people, it's in a very big sense, but you know, most of all, I work really hard and I care deeply about what I make and I love creating things and I love, I love, but I want to make things that will move people and bring joy and bring social change and will make the world a better place in some way or another. And that comes across in this film. I mean, you may have done this purposely. Maybe you haven't. But, you know, again, going back to Labie, but I can even take Kate's story, for example, where she's kind of a junior coder or somebody that's just really getting involved into more nuances about coding or whatever it may be. But at the same time, she's concerned about, you know, women having mentoring. And so she's creating a website, Women Rising, and she's doing the launch for this. So, you know, she's being driven on one end to work this business, but she's creating this whole other nonprofit setting for herself. So I think there's so many layers to these individuals that resonate with us all, right? Because we work a full-time job or we're out there doing something during the day, but that doesn't really say who we are. Sometimes what we do after five o'clock in the sense of being a first or second shift type person 
really begins to say who you are, right? Sure. I think you capture that so well about these individuals. You know, even the the people, Castle, they're starting this real estate business. And the one guy makes the comment. He says, I think his name was Brian that was starting Bonza Pasta. He says, I'm not really like Brian, who's really emphatic about waking up, making chickpeas into real noodles. We care about real estate, but not like he does. And later on, as he gets accepted to the Y Combinator and some other things, you see him become invested and excited about what he does. So I think you capture that really well, and it resonates with me as an entrepreneur. So I don't know if you intentionally did that or not, but I know that this is something that you could leave out there and it will stand the test of time because anybody who is starting a business or trying to do something outside of their day-to-day work, this story will resonate with them. Well, thank you. Yes, it was intentional. And every second in that movie is intentional because we had 220 hours of footage. We had so much amazing footage that couldn't make it into the movie because like we weren't going to make an eight hour movie. You know, I mean, Max has so many choice lines that were just like extraordinary Hmm. in terms of, you know, even your question of how did we end up telling some stories and not like, Mm -hmm. you know, what were our choices? The first thing I'll say is, yes, the film is about young people starting businesses in Detroit. But, you know, I got the idea to make the movie because my son was a fellow in a program called Venture for America, which is this extraordinary fellowship program that Andrew Yang, who founded it, saw the numbers that young people were not starting companies in droves and thought, what can I do to help create a pathway for kind of entrepreneurship beyond just taking a class or you know, offering classes at universities. So Venture for America recruits college seniors and sends them to work at startups. When we started filming, they were in 15 cities. They're now in maybe 18 or more and mostly economically depressed cities. The idea is that these fellows work for two years. They're hired by a company in these cities. They work for the company for two years and learn what it means to be an entrepreneur. And VFA encourages them to launch or to come up with an idea for their own business. So after the two years, a lot of them, 25% of them launch their own businesses. I saw the experience my son was having and how much he was thrown into the deep end as made head of marketing for a company that was growing quickly and had no clue what he was doing. <laughs> he was an English major and they're like, oh, you studied English. You can handle our marketing. <laughs> yeah. so, right? So, um, and I met Andrew Yang and I said, I'd like to follow some of your fellows in one of your cities. Like, no matter what happens, they are going to learn and grow so much as people. And that's what interests me. And I'm always interested in anyone who's willing to take risks. And then he was game. And I brought on Cynthia Wade as my co-director. And and then when PwC Charitable Foundation gave us the initial funding, we had to pick what city are we going to film in. And there was just no question it had to be Detroit. And that was The summer of 2014, Detroit was still in bankruptcy. It was a very different city then than it is now. I mean, that city has just, I was there last week for a week, and it's astounding to me how quickly Detroit is changing, which is a whole other discussion. But anyway, if we, if Cynthia and I set out to make a movie about entrepreneurs in Detroit, then we would have had a very different cast of characters in this film. Maybe there would have been one VFA fellow. So what's happening in Detroit, you know, in terms of grassroots entrepreneurship is extraordinary. So the the people we followed were all VFA fellows, and we wanted a range within that. So we wanted some people who were just graduating from college and coming to Detroit. Mm -hmm. We followed Kate, who had been in Detroit for a year already. And then we followed 
Max and Brian, who had already worked for two years at startups in Detroit and were launching their own companies. So Castle and Bonza are the only two companies we follow from the inception, from the point of view of the company. Hmm. Labib had just graduated from college and was coming to Detroit to join a startup, but he wasn't founder. He was in essence a founder because he was employee number one and the company was just launching, but it wasn't his company. So we got that perspective of being employee number one at a company. We got the perspective of being the founder from Max and his two colleagues and from Brian. We got the perspective of being employee number one at Bonza from Avery. And then Dextina, the reason why she seemed so stealth was because she was working for a company that is funding startups and she wasn't allowed to talk about her work. Mm-hmm. She left there when we had stopped filming and went to work at Shinola Audio. So she was one of the engineers designing the new line of audio products at Shinola. It would have been great to follow her there because then we would have been able to capture her as an engineer at work. I could be Um, making this up, but I think Shinola in Detroit, which is one of the biggest, more recent places to work at, also did watches or they do watches. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. They started out as a watch company and um, they've moved into a lot of other products. So they think they have leather goods. They have this now line of audio products and bicycles. They have really, they make really beautiful bicycles. So anyways, what we ended up doing, we filmed with all of them, like following Kate at work was just not that interesting because she's a coder and it was interesting to follow But again, there was a lot of interesting stuff Mm -hmm. with Kate at work. But, you know, when you're a coder, you're... You're coding. Yeah. You're coding. I mean, if we had been able to follow her, Detroit Labs, where she worked, was this great, really amazing company. What Detroit Labs is doing is they're taking people, you don't have to have any coding experience or even like a kick-ass education. They just, they want to find people who they think have a logical brain and, you know, have a, a brain that's, you know, suited for coding and also who, who are just super resilient because it's so hard. They put them through what I think is a four month boot camp, and those who survive the boot camp are hired. And so, what Detroit Labs is doing is because there aren't enough coders in Detroit, they're training people and they're looking to train people with across a wide range. I mean, they're really looking to boost the diversity in the tech scene in Detroit. If we had followed Kate during the four month boot camp, I think that would have been really great because she. She said that there were many, many days, either tears in the ladies' room, shots in the ladies' room, just like, you know, but, um, but, but her, her women rising was just, it was the more interesting storyline. And again, there were so many storylines with each one of these people and we couldn't fit them all in. So we had to make some choices as well as filmmakers. I mean, I was worried the entire time in edit that we wouldn't have a movie because it's very rare to have a film where you follow six main characters and Max has two colleagues. So you, we really followed eight. And then the house, they buy a house at auction for mm-hmm. $8,200 and, and renovated themselves. They were clueless. They like did not know what they were doing. They ended up living in a house in the winter with no heat, which one of my favorite moments in the movie is Max in the tent with the space heater because he's freezing cold. Yeah. To have a movie with that many characters and the house, which had its own storyline, I was just so worried that we would not end up with a cohesive film. So there were so many moments that ended up, as they say, on the cutting room floor. But 
to come back to that comment from Max about, you know, where, where he's constantly comparing himself to Brian of Bonza, yep. um, which, by the way, just raised $7.5 million last week. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I mean, they're doing great and we're thrilled for them. Oh, and Castle's doing well, too. So, you know, they start out and in the early months when we would come to Detroit and film, they had no business plan. They were three guys who were like, we're renovating a house together and we like renovating a house together. So let's launch a company together. But they really didn't know what the company was, whereas Brian was the complete opposite. He was like, like, I love pasta. I want to find a healthy pasta. I like, There are no healthy pastas on the market that I like. He created his own healthy pasta and then said, this is going to be my company and launched it and was so super passionate. Max says, like, even if Bonza didn't exist, Brian would be on the street corner handing out Bonza, like, yep. you know, his chicky pasta. And Max struggles with the fact that if Castle goes out of business, it's going to be because we're not passionate enough about Castle. But he says something, you know, toward the end, which is so true, which is, yeah, like passion often isn't something that you start out with. You know, sometimes you can be excited about something, but the more successful it becomes, the more passionate you become about it. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that Max is super passionate about Castle and property management now because they're finding their way forward with it. But he didn't start out. He was passionate about building a company. He wasn't passionate about property management. But again, the deeper he went into it, the more he learned about it, the more he became an expert at it. He has become passionate about it. And so again, you know, these questions of when people say, find your passion, find your passion, you know, even me when I was at my old job and not feeling passionate anymore and was thinking about what do I do next, people would say, find your passion. And I'm like, well, I'm passionate about a lot of things, but like how to monetize the things I'm passionate about. Like, um, you know, that was a harder thing. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm super passionate about storytelling. So I figured out a way to continue to tell stories and in a broader range even than I had been. And then the question, are entrepreneurs born or made is another one that we could argue all day yeah. long, right? And I, I just feel like the question anyways about, are you passionate? Go out and find something you're passionate I believe all that and crush it and hustle and all of that is somewhat dismissive because I think we all have something we're passionate about. Again, this film kind of highlights the fact that these people just don't live one life. You know, something I heard a long time ago from someone I can't remember where says, if all you ever talk about is business, then you must not be good at anything else because, (laughs) you know, that's all you talk about business. And these guys are dealing with you know, or at least Labib is about religion and understanding that he would be disconnected from his family. And Kate has a much greater calling that, you know, I want to bring women together for mentoring. And who knows how that bridge can be drawn together between coding and the mentorship. But we're all passionate about something. It's just connecting the dots. But when somebody says, go be passionate, that's what you sell. It's like, dude, that's that's kind of dismissive. I mean, I'm passionate. I just don't know how to draw it together yet. So I think it immobilizes people because then they're like, but like, I don't know what to do with this. And like, what's wrong with me? People who are super successful are telling me just to find my passion. <laughs> right. And I think that so much of it is just in the doing and figuring it out as you go, which is really the big thing. Like one of the other big themes of this movie. 
So look, you're an entrepreneur. I want to ask some questions to you directly, not necessarily about this film and understanding what they've done, but just to you directly. And this may not be a fair question because your son was an entrepreneur, which kind of brought you into this. You're an entrepreneur, of course, which is why you jumped the creative breed. But did you learn anything differently yourself as an entrepreneur when you walk away from your film? And what is it that you you could point to and said, you know what? This taught me something different, either about the generation itself or what did you take away from the film? Wow. I mean, I learned so much making this movie. In many ways, my journey and my co-producer, Brian Egan, who's the same age as the people in the movie. I mean, I had hired him right out of film school. The journey of making this movie was so similar to the journey of our characters in the movie. I mean, I raised initial funding from PwC Charitable Foundation and we started filming, but we almost ran out of money along the way. I mean, I wasn't sure at any moment, oh my God, where are these stories going? And are we going to actually end up with a cohesive film at the end? And uh, figuring out our branding in our distribution and putting together like, you know, a whole new path, an innovative path, uh, an entrepreneurial path for distribution. So, I mean, we had the high highs and the low lows along the way as well. But what I learned most of all was uh, overcoming fears Mm. to do things. Mm -hmm. And Oftentimes, it was like once I was in so deep, there was no turning back. So Mm -hmm. I just had to keep going forward and just have faith, but not even faith because it's not faith isn't going to get you through. What's (laughs) going to get you through is hustle. Mm -hmm. It's like you, you, you do have to have faith because I think that most entrepreneurs who are successful, it's because they didn't give up. Mm -hmm. I think it's so hard, the mountain's so high, so many obstacles at every turn that I think most people give up because it's just too hard. And I think those who are crazy enough, they have blinders on or they're just so resilient and determined and they don't give up. I think that as long as you're, you know, savvy enough and you have a good product, then you're just going to push through and survive and, and thrive. So what I learned most of all was I, so many times I was terrified about doing something and it's like, well, Cheryl, you have to do it. You have to just keep moving forward. And then I would do it whether it was reaching out to someone super important to ask for money or whatever. And then it was like, wow, that seemed so hard. What was I afraid of? Like, that wasn't so bad. And then you just keep raising the bar because then you realize, oh, I was capable of that. What more am I capable of? And so kind of learning to overcome fears and just keep pushing myself to do more and to take on more. And to so now I'm really much, much more fearless than I ever was and much more confident. And again, I'm realistic because, you know, when you're doing things that are ambitious, it's always hard and Mm -hmm. there's always a good chance that it won't work out. But still the attitude of we're going to do this and just keep pushing forward. That's really good because I think a lot of us have fears and concerns about we know where we want to go. Some of us are somewhat insecure. We know we're good at what we do in some respect, but at the same time, we're not sure we're good enough, which is kind of a, a vacillating thought, if you will. For so, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I think most people feel that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we did a survey with a lot of our listeners, and one of the things that came back to us was, and I'm going to tell you the reason why I'm asking you this, but There's something out there that says 82% of startups are self-funded. And I'm going to ask you, is that the optimal way to go, is self-funding your startup? And the reason why I'm going to ask you is because 
you dealt closely with Venture for America. You understand what these startups look like and some of their challenges internally. And talking about fears, you know, people don't want to go out and ask for money or talk to VCs or have anybody be business owner with them because that's ultimately what it'll turn out to be if you do get funding. What do you think is the right approach with you being an entrepreneur and your experience and exposure to all of these companies or some of them? Yeah, I mean, that's such a complex question because, I mean, first of all, I think that we have to differentiate between a startup and a small business. Mm. There is a big difference. So a startup is technically a company that can scale quickly. And most startups do need outside funding to build the infrastructure and be able to scale quickly, whether that means to invest in tech or whether that means to have the capital so that they can invest in production and in staffing. Then there are small businesses which they're not scaling. I'm not a startup. I'm a small business. I'm not looking to scale. I'm not looking to, I work across multiple projects and I want to always be doing, have many projects going. You know, at my last company, I was managing hundreds of people and, and many series with multiple episodes. It was just, I wasn't happy partly because I got too far away from the creative process. Mm. So like what we do isn't hugely scalable. And in terms of, you know, people love to chase the VC money. And I think that VC money is great. And along with it comes mentoring and access to relationships and far more than the capital, or far more in addition to the capital. But there's a heavy price that comes with taking or responsibility that comes with taking anyone else's money. Mm -hmm. And that is that you then answer to them and you give up control over how you manage your business. And that's fine, but you just need to understand. And the other factor of taking on money or not taking on money aside from how quickly you want to grow and the capital you need to invest is, do you need the money? I mean, I launched Creative Breed at a time in my life where I had worked my whole career. I had saved money. My husband had a secure job. We had put three kids through college or had put two through college and had saved enough for the third to put her through college. So I was, I mean, I basically, and my husband, when I told him I was going to resign from a very well-paid job and was earning a lot of money, he was not happy. He was, he said, what, (laughs) what, like, what are you doing? Like you could, what, like, what, like, And then when I said to him, I'm going to resign and I don't know what I'm going to do, but I need some time to figure that out because I don't want to make a lateral move. He really, he was, he was supportive, but he didn't understand what what I was doing. And I said to him, you know what, I'm, this is a gift to myself. We have the money in the bank. I've worked really hard. I've earned money over the years and saved money. And I'm going to give myself a few years to try to get this off the ground. And if it doesn't work out, I will go take another job. But I want, like, it's now or never because at age, you know, 49, I can't do this 10 years from now. And this is a gift to myself. So in my case, I was making a very eyes wide open decision that I maybe wasn't going to be able to monetize what I was doing, but I wanted to give it a shot. And I was at a place in my life where I could do that. There are many, many, many people who can't. And if you look at the statistics of who's launching businesses, it's people of my generation that are launching more businesses than 
any other age group. And I think it's partly for that reason. I think there are many reasons, but because we have money saved or access to capital. But so the first question is, what type of business is it? And that will help determine whether you take money or try to raise money. And then the second thing is, or maybe the first thing is your need, your financial need. And are you capable to launch? Because all companies, I mean, or most companies don't throw off revenue at first. So a lot of people start companies on the side. They're in jobs and then they're starting the company on the side until the company is able to generate enough revenue for them to leave their work. But that's really hard to do also because you're juggling a lot at once. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you kind of split the difference between the two in terms of how it's approached is if it's a startup or a small business and a small business in a lot of cases can somewhat be funded by you. It just depends on what you're looking for. Ultimately, we talked about some of the companies that you work with, Bonza being one of them that just raised, you know, seven and a half million dollars, which is awesome. And they have space to grow and scale within that. I agree with you that when you pick up with a, a venture capitalist, and this is not a knock on a venture capitalist whatsoever. I think it not at all. Serves no, its no, purpose. no. Yeah. But I, I think you do as a business owner, and not that you do, but you have the potential of losing your vision. What you initially started the business off going in a direction, you now have a shared responsibility with that person. And they may not fully agree with it. Now, I know you can say, and I've talked to others that said, no, you make all that up front and you square it away. Like any business plan, stuff changes, directions change, things pivot. So that's really good. If you're investing in a company, I mean, most VCs say people first. So they are investing in people they believe in. True, true. But still, if they feel like the people are not managing the business well, they're going to speak up because they want to protect their investment. So I think it's a little unrealistic to ask somebody to give you money and then to feel no responsibility to them. I think that that's not right. Thank you to our sponsor, Thrive Theme, for today's episode. Thrive Themes has blazingly fast WordPress templates and plugins built to get more traffic, more subscribers, more clients, and more customers for you. Thrive Themes makes more than just themes. The company is well known for its powerful array of marketing tools and plugins for WordPress, such as Thrive Leads, Thrive Content Builder, and Thrive Headline Optimizer. I use them and I've created a site and a plugin for a site called I want to be an affiliate.com literally in a matter of 30 minutes. I downloaded WordPress plugged in Thrive Themes, and it worked fine. Go into today's episode, click on the link that says Thrive Themes, and you'll be taken to their site. You definitely want to give them a try. Thrive Themes, a blazingly fast WordPress template and plugin for your site. Totally. I agree. So Cheryl, you've been so gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. What projects do you have going on right now? Do you have anything out? Feel free to share whatever you want. If people want to get in touch with you or they want to order some of your products, feel free to share anything you want with them. Well, first of all, we're always looking for client work. So if there are any, anyone listening who needs video, whether it's a, a web series like Mad Genius Tips or branded content like what we just did for the clothing brand Chico's or 
any startups that need brand videos. We love telling entrepreneurs stories. So always looking for client work for sure. And then I would encourage people to watch Generation Startup available on Netflix and soon available uh, iTunes and a few other digital platforms. And in terms of uh, future projects, I'm super excited about a new feature documentary that we're developing. When I was in Chile with Generation Startup, I learned of a, a coding program that right now is in Peru, Chile, and Mexico that's taking young women, mostly 18 to 30-year-olds, who don't have a really great educational background, who come from poverty, and in six months, training them in coding, and they have a 75% success rate placing these women in really great jobs. And a lot of these women come, some are single moms, a good number of them come from domestic abuse at home. And I am so incredibly inspired by this program and by the young women coming out of it. So I would love to follow a cohort for six months like we followed our characters in Generation Startup. So that's one project I'm super excited about. My daughter made a video game when she was 16 called Tampon Run that went viral. (laughs) Called Uh, called what? Tampon Run to break (laughs) down the menstrual taboo. Yeah. And she and her co-creator wrote a book for HarperCollins called Girl Code, Gaming, Going Viral, and Getting It Done. And I, with a partner who comes out of children's television, we're developing a live-action TV series. Um, So hoping to set that up and have a number of other documentary projects uh, in the entrepreneurship space that Brian and I are developing. You know, developing more films of, you know, uplift like Generation Startup, this live action TV series and then you know eager to continue to do more client work. And if people want to do some client work with you, how can they get in touch with you? What's the website they should go to or is there a contact page or something along those lines? They can reach out to us through creativebreed.com which is my production company or they can email me directly. So I look forward to hearing from people. Sounds good. Thank you Cheryl so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you Priest so much as well. Thanks for listening. The next episode of Missions and Marketplace podcast drops on Sunday, drops every Sunday. If you like what we're doing, leave us a rating, a review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help others find out about the show. I got love for you, and I know you have it for me. Help me raise the bar even higher. For more information about the show, follow me on Twitter at the handle P. Willis Sr. Until next Sunday, keep dreaming keep pushing and I'll do the same and I'll talk to you soon. I'm the best ever. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable and I'm just ferocious.